You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Captain, Hmm? I want to tell you something. I think you're like when I was a little girl. You think I'm like when you were a little girl? Forget it. The moment's passed. Is this about your toast? How'd you get that? Gina gave it to me. Very well written. There are several compelling anecdotes. The fonts suit the tone. Good work. I did feel, however, the word choice could have been improved in spots. I marked them awk for awkward. That was the best thing anyone's ever said to me. I marked them awk for awkward. It's advice. He's mentoring me. Yes. Good morning. I'm Jason Lining, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be with you. And I don't know that I necessarily feel like that. But it is, it is, uh, it's, it's a great joy to be here today. And we are, as Pastor Jim already mentioned, we are going into a series, a short series on mentoring. Mentoring is something that we see in the clip is that some young person who has aspirations realizes and recognizes that if they're going to achieve what, what they're aspiring to, that they need some help along the way. They need a mentor. One of the things that our, our uh, worship team did this last week, we were uh, sitting around conversing, and, and we were thinking about a number of different television shows, series, in the last several years that have featured that thrust, that desire for mentoring. Is that me? I'll be right back. Whoops. <laughs> so we were talking about it, and the thrust, the desire for mentoring, is something that's been noticeable in a number of different uh, pictures that we've seen that have crossed our, our screens, all kinds of different screens. But the, the thirst, the desire for that, is present within our culture. And maybe you have people in your own life, the, the, the life that you live, the place that you work, where you see that there's a thirst for somebody, that somebody has a thirst to be mentored. And one of the things that we see as we look at the pages of Scripture is that mentoring is one of the things that God uses to advance his cause and his kingdom. And mentoring is part of great, God's great divine economy. It's a tool in which he invites us to either walk alongside of somebody else as a mentee and learn the ways of Christ, or he invites us to walk alongside the ways of somebody else and teach and convey and, and live as an example the ways of Christ. And so we have signs all throughout our building. <clears throat> Pardon me. If, if you're here for a while, the signs may sort of fade into the background, kind of like your, you know, your curtains or something like that. But there are signs that convey our sense of mission that are hung around this place. And our mission here at Schweitzer is to be about transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, how do we transform lives? What does Jesus show us by way of transforming lives? One of the, one of the ways that we see represented in Jesus and then in all kinds of other followers of Christ 
is the reality that they come alongside somebody else. They share faith. They share wisdom. They share insight. They share the highs and the lows of life. And through that, through walking alongside somebody else, you find that it's Christ himself who walks alongside as well. And people's lives are transformed. They're changed. So this morning, we want to take a quick look at three different biblical characters that are significant in some ways because they contribute to the life of somebody else as a mentor. I mean, the people we're going to look at are mentors, and they contribute to the life of somebody else, and the life of somebody else is, is significant in the story of God, the story that we find within the pages of Scripture. And so we're going to um, look at three different characters, and we're going to go from the newest in the New Testament to the Old Testament. So we're going to kind of read from right to left. We don't normally do that, do we, in terms of our sequence, but we're going to do that today. We're going to go from right to left. We're going to start with the character of Barnabas. <coughs> Pardon me. Barnabas first comes on the scene in Acts chapter 4. He's part of the church in Israel. And one of the things that we find out about Barnabas is that though he is in Jerusalem, he was born on the island of Cyprus, born on the island of Cyprus, and his given name was Joseph. But he was a person of great encouragement. And so because they, they loved to give nicknames, at least in that little part of Jerusalem, they gave uh, Barnabas the nickname of Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement, because of the task that he fulfilled. And he was somebody who was an encourager. And he saw things. He saw things in people. And he saw what God was up to. In chapter 9, pardon me. This is just bugging me. Sorry. I think my idiosyncratic stuff is coming out right now, and I don't know why. <clears throat> in, in Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, before he's called the Apostle Paul, encounters Christ. He encounters Christ, and then he returns to Jerusalem, and he desires, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 9, he desires to connect with the apostles. But the apostles and everybody else in Jerusalem is really afraid of Saul because they know the kind of threats that he's, he's levied against the church. They know what he's done with Stephen, and they've, they knew what he went, set out to do when he left Jerusalem. And so they stay at a distance. Nobody wants to see who Saul is. But Barnabas, Luke tells us, in verse 26, he says, When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. But Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had, been, how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. Saul saw something, or Barnabas saw something in who Saul was. He saw the glimmer of faith. He saw the reality that he had preached. And he had heard things about who Saul was and how there was a great transformation. And so Barnabas, not only did he see, but Barnabas took a step of great faith, a step of risky vision. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out on a limb here. And I'm going to say that Saul is somebody that we can connect with. And so they listened to Barnabas. They brought Saul in 
Saul connected to the apostles. And for a little while in Jerusalem, he preached. He preached until he said too much. And then everybody in Jerusalem said, it's time for you to go away and learn something. And they did. It's an interesting story. Um, read down to the end of Acts 9. Luke has an interesting way of saying, once Saul left, there was peace in Jerusalem. Um, <clears throat> he's giving us some humor. He's giving us some humor there in the page of Scripture. So Saul leaves, and he goes to Tarsus. And we don't really know how long he's in Tarsus. It could be three years. It could be six years. It could be up to 13. But he's in Tarsus, and he's learning, and he's maturing in the faith and in what God is up to. And Barnabas, over this time, grows in the faith as well. And there's a point when the, the apostles in Jerusalem hear that something is happening in Antioch. And so they turn to Barnabas and they say, Barnabas, we want you to go, to go down to Antioch because we hear that people are coming to Christ there. And we want you to investigate. We want you to encourage. We want you to teach. And so Barnabas does. He goes to Antioch. And he begins to teach. He begins to encourage. But he realizes he needs help. And thinking back about who Saul is and Saul was and what Saul could become, what God could do with Saul's life, Barnabas leaves Antioch and he goes to Tarsus and he finds Saul and he says, Saul, come back with me. At this time, he's Paul. He says, come back with me. And so he takes him to Antioch. And in Antioch, they hang out and Barnabas teaches and Paul teaches the faith. They encourage the church. They give leadership to the people there. Barnabas is this person who has visionary, um, he's got this visionary, risk-taking mentorship, this presence with Paul. And then they go on a missionary journey, and they have a great time. And this one who's been a leader suddenly becomes a partner. This one who's become, he was a mentor, he simply begins to walk alongside, and Paul begins to speak. And at one point, Luke says that that. Paul is the main speaker on this trip. Barnabas, who is the mentor, begins to take a step back. And Paul begins to carry on the work that God has called him into. And then they go to Jerusalem. And there's a little council, and then Paul's got this urge to go back out into the rest of the world. And he says to Barnabas, it's time to go. And Barnabas says, it is time to go. And he says, Paul, there's somebody in Jerusalem that I want to take with us on the trip. And Paul says, and who's that? And he says, it's John Mark. Paul says, the guy who left us when we were on our trip last time, you want to take him? And, and Barnabas says, yes, I want to take him because he's grown. He's got faith. He's ready for this trip. And Paul says, not on your life. I'm not taking him. I don't trust him. He, he left us and, and we've got great adventure. And Barnabas says, I think he's ready, Paul. And Paul says, he's not ready. And so they decide in that moment, a split. Paul took Silas, and Barnabas took John Mark. You see, Barnabas was somebody who was seeing into the future, not just seeing into the past. Oftentimes we see, we can see into the past, right? We can see the things, the places where things have gone wrong, how people have messed up. But Barnabas sees into the future what God is doing and what God is shaping, even when Paul can't quite get there yet. But he will. He will. Because at some point down in the future, he invites John Mark to join him. Now think about this. Much of our New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. The first gospel ever written is written by a guy by the name of John Mark. 
and Matthew and Luke are based upon what John Mark wrote first. And behind both of those two characters is somebody who saw the glimmer of faith, the capacity, the audacity of what God could do with a life that most people looked at and said, I don't know if they're ready. I don't know if we can trust them. Barnabas had visionary sight into what God was up to. And he became a mentor. He stepped up to the place, up to the plate. The second person we want to take a look at just for a short minute here is the person of Elizabeth. Elizabeth shows up in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 6. Luke says about Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, that they were people who walk with God. They're people who walk with God, and yet they've longed for a baby, and they've never had a baby. Until an angel appears and says to Zacharias, you're going to have a baby. He says, how can that be? Elizabeth's really old. He never looked at himself and said, you know what, I'm really old. But he said something about Elizabeth. She's really old. I don't know how that's going to work. And uh, he said, and the angel wonderfully said, because you called her really old, you don't get to talk for a while. And, well, I don't know if that's the reason why, but... Okay, so that's a little embellishment, right? A little embellishment of the gospel story. But he said, uh, he said to Zacharias, he said, you're going to have a baby. Elizabeth's going to. And so Elizabeth got pregnant. And when she was six months pregnant, an angel appeared to Mary and said to Mary, who had never been with a man, you're going to be pregnant. And Mary's like, how can this be? And the angel said, hey, the Spirit's going to make it happen. And if you think miracles are hard, you ought to go talk to Elizabeth, your cousin. Because she's pregnant. She's six months pregnant. And Mary's like, oh, yeah. And so Luke tells us that right after the, the angel left, that Mary didn't jump in her car, but she did take a trip. And she went and she saw Elizabeth, her cousin. And when she arrived, when she arrived, and she's pregnant at this point, Elizabeth says to her, behold, the woman who carries my Lord. She said, the baby inside of me is so excited. He's been doing somersaults. When you arrived, when I heard your voice, this baby was doing somersaults. I'm trying to imagine that. Uh, I've never been pregnant. Those of you who have, when you read that text, do you just like go, ouch? I don't know what you do, but you should, I think. But she is excited and overjoyed for Mary. One of the things that Elizabeth paints for us, she paints the picture that she understands what Mary is going to go through. Because Mary's pregnant. Mary's never been pregnant before. Elizabeth's never been pregnant before either. They've got a lot to talk about. And both of them have a sense of there is a birth upcoming that is a miraculous birth. They have a lot to talk about. And Mary's got a lot of questions because she's a young girl. And this was not a birth by normal means, and she's not married. There are a lot of questions that she's got to think about and talk through. And Elizabeth is there to listen to understand. And though Luke never tells us this explicitly, I think it's there implicitly. But you know what? Zacharias and Elizabeth have been people who have struggled and prayed, and they have been giving themselves to something that we might call travailing prayer, where they continue to pray and not give up. They continue to trust God and not give up. And what is Mary going to need as she carries the baby Jesus inside of her? Is she raises this little boy Jesus? Is she not going to need the audacity to pray and not give up? 
She sees that exemplified in the life of Elizabeth. And then we're going to turn the pages back in Scripture just a little bit to the story of Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai and Esther tell us the story of the people of Israel when they are in exile, away from Israel. And Esther, you know, becomes the queen of Persia. Her husband is Xerxes. And we've been asked several times by, uh, by one of the younger folks among us if we could uh, use some veggie tales in our sermons. And so this morning, we're going to show a little bit of the story of Esther via veggie tales. And that moment, uh, so Dennis earlier said, there's no arms on these, on these characters. I'm like, they're not. They're vegetables. <laughs> they don't have arms. But they're going to tell the story of Esther and Mordecai, and Mordecai's gift as a mentor to Esther. Let's roll that film. Izzy! Izzy! Cousin Mordecai? What is it? Oh, he's done it! He's finally done it! Who? Done what? Look! What's this? It's an edict. In just a few days, all of us, our whole family, will be sent to the island of perpetual tickling. What? Who? Who did this? Oh, who do you think? Haman! I told you he hates us, hates our whole family, and, and now he's done it. He got the king to sign this, and, and we'll all be banished. Oh. What are you going to do? That's just it. I can't do anything. I'm just a god. But you, you're the queen. What do you mean? You must go to him. You must go to the king. What? Don't you know what happens to people who appear before the king uninvited? Esther. Remember the Peony brothers? Esther, there is no other way. You are the only one who can stop this. No. No, I'm not gonna. I, I didn't even want to be the queen. No. You're smart, Mordecai. Think of another way. Esther, there is no other way. I, I wasn't even brave enough to go to my friend about the apple, and, and now you want me to go to the king? Even if he doesn't banish me for showing up, why would he listen to me? I mean, Haman is his right-hand man. I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you this. You wanted to know why you were here, why you became queen. I told you God must have a reason. Esther, perhaps he put you here for such a time as this. Perhaps this is the reason. Esther, you never have to be afraid to do what's right. I'll pray for you. We'll all pray for you. One of the things Mordecai does there for Esther, he not only promises to pray for her, But he encourages her that a lot of things we face in life, we can't have, we, we don't have an exit plan on. There's no escape route. 
Sometimes life brings you things and you have to go through. You don't get to turn around. You don't have to choose. You don't have another fork in the road that you can take. You have to go through. And so Mordecai, as a mentor, brings to Esther confidence, trust, faith, and this stunning capacity to say, we have to go through. When we look at those three different personalities within the pages of Scripture, those three different mentors in Barnabas, we see somebody who has a vision, and they see something in other people that they, those people don't see in themselves. Mentors have that capacity. Have you ever had anybody who saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself? I think one of the, one of the kindest things that somebody, uh, a mentor ever said to me was, they thought my writing was pretty good. It was a professor in college. A couple of years ago, I went back and because I kept a, a bunch of my papers. I don't know if you've kept papers from college or kept that kind of stuff. I'd kept a number of those things. And I opened it up, and I read one of the papers that I'd given to him, and he gave me an A or an A minus, something like that on it. And I read it, and I said, how did that not get an F? Like, I don't know if you've ever been able to go back, but I don't think, so I don't think he was grading necessarily on the content of the paper that was there, but I think he was grading on something that he saw that wasn't yet developed. He saw. Mentors see. They see with common grace, with like their experience, and their wisdom and their knowledge, and they see with sanctified grace. The grace that comes from God and that says, you know what, with God all things are possible. And there's some things that people don't imagine for themselves that God wants to do in them, but all things are possible with God, and they claim it. They see, they have vision. Mentors do that. Mentors give understanding, and they give confidence. That's what we really see in Elizabeth, giving understanding and confidence. Colette Freeman uh, said this to David, and it's something that just has been powerful for, for both of us. Colette said, one of the most important things mentors do is reassure the mentees that they're capable and they give them hope and that they'll succeed. You ever had somebody come alongside of you who's given you confidence, given you hope, given you that sense that, you know what, I'm, I'm in the midst of something right now and I don't know how I'm going to keep going, and yet somebody comes alongside and says, you can do this. You know what needs to be done. You can take this mantle on and you can complete the task or you can, you can push through. And that's really one of the other things that mentors do, what we see in, in Mordecai. In the last couple of years, the word grit has appeared in, in conversations. Grit being the thing that a lot of folks in our culture seem to lack or that's lacking maybe generally, broadly within our culture, that we just don't have the grit, we don't have the stomach, we don't have the fortitude to see tough things through. Mentors have the capacity to come alongside and they put an arm around somebody and they walk with them. And they say, you know what? Life, life is tough. It's really tough. And everybody's got challenges. But I'm here to walk with you and so are others. And there aren't, there aren't exit ramps. And some of the toughest things in life, you just have to go through you ever had somebody do that for you? Imagine. Imagine if those three characters within the pages of Scripture, that those three characters have been present in your own life, 
Who are they? And also imagine if there are people in your life who need those characters to reappear today. If there's somebody who's struggling and they need you to be like a Mordecai. Or if, or if there's somebody that just is at a place where they don't feel understood and they need you to be an Elizabeth. Or if there's somebody that, that sees all the limitations in their life and they need you to be a Barnabas. Friends, the world in which we live, the church in which we're present, the community in which we live needs us to be people like Barnabas and Elizabeth and Mordecai. It needs us to be those kinds of people. Some of those opportunities that present themselves to us to be people like that come to us in organic places. And what we mean by organic is that there's nothing designed, there's nothing intentional, like the opening scene that we saw from, from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, you just begin to rub shoulders with somebody or you interact with somebody in a, in a unique place and they tend to give off the sense that they're either wandering or they're lost or they're looking for help. And somehow they begin to turn to you and they begin to ask you questions. And you're like, inside you may have this question like, do they think I'm a mentor? Do they think I have it together? Do they think I have the answers to life's persistent questions? And you're like, because I don't. And yet they keep coming back to you and you're like, what is going on here? Well, that is a way in which organic mentorship begins and it gets started and and there are people looking for that. And you may be the kind of person who needs to pay attention to other people in your world. And I'm, I would just invite you this next week to think about and to pay attention to the people who keep coming back to you and asking you questions. Are they somebody who's looking for a mentor? And do you need to have a more open conversation about that? Do you need to talk to Jesus if, if he's putting people in your life who need a mentor? You need to talk to him and say, hey, show me, Jesus, if there are people present that I need to, to invest in, to open my heart to, my life to. And if Jesus says something, do it. Take a risk. Be like a Barnabas. Step into that place. That's organic mentoring. Now, here at Schweitzer, we have a number of other ways that we've got lined out for mentors. And we really need a, a ton of people to step up to the challenge of being mentors and uh, we've got things out on the table in the, um, in the fellowship center. There's a sheet that you can pick up, and it begins to describe all of the different places, all of the different ministries that we have where we need people to be mentors. We have things like Jobs for Life and Faith and Finances, Pittman Tutoring, Coach House. We've got the Life Change Plan, the uh, Alpha Table Leaders, Spiritual Guides, a lot of different places where somebody can serve as a mentor. Now, some of us may begin to think to ourselves, we don't know if we're, if we're suitable, if we've got the time commitment. David Freeman has done a beautiful job. He's outlined all kinds of things on that sheet. I'd encourage you to stop at the table, pick up a sheet. You'll find out what are some of the requirements. What do you have to know? What are you, are you looking for? What does it take to be a mentor, somebody who sits or walks with somebody else in a one-on-one -on -one kind of conversation? You've got something. Oh, that's from the website. Thanks. Um, if you go to our, if you go to SUMC website, you'll find a graphic that looks like the, the piece over on the side. And that talks about our discipleship path. And then you'll find a nice paragraph about the influence and the significance of mentors. 
But one of the things that we'd really like to invite you to is upcoming on August 22nd, Wednesday night, 6.30 to 8. We're going to have a session down below in Memorial Hall called Upgrade Your Mentoring 2, where David and myself are going to talk more about mentoring, how you can get started, where you can plug in, um, every, every kind of thing that's necessary to know about mentoring in, in general, and then all kinds of places that, have off, that offer mentoring are going to be ready to say, here's what mentoring looks like in unique phases in unique different ministries around here at Schweitzer. I want to tell you one story. In just a, there's an important card to take note of. In just a moment, we're going to have the ushers. And if you're interested in being a mentor, if you want to be a part of that, you can check the box. Last week, or you can write on the card. But last week, the Church of the Center, Church of the Center has a unique feature of, of their worship service. They invite people to, to come up to the platform and talk about how Jesus is making a difference in their life. And they call those elements life change stories. And last week, Olive stepped out from the, the chairs and she walked up and she, she took the microphone. And she said, she said a couple different things that were really significant. But one of the things she said is, she said, I want to tell you about how my life has changed she said, a couple years ago, I got clean off drugs. I kicked that. And then I came here to Schweitzer, and I began to hear, to hear about God, and I began to hear about the life change plan. And she said, I knew I needed to take another step. Now, getting clean was one thing, but I needed to take another step. I needed to take a step further in where God was leading me. So she said, I entered into it. And one of the requirements of the life change plan is that the participant, the mentee, would read scripture, that they would read scripture every day. And so she said, when I would meet with my mentor on a weekly basis for the first three months, I would check the box. Yep, I've read scripture. She said, I was lying to my mentor and to myself because I hadn't. And then she said, I got tired of lying. And so I decided I better go get a Bible so that I can read scriptures. So she said, I went out and I bought a Bible and then I opened it and I opened the Bible and I could not figure out what in the world I was supposed to do with in this moment. So she said, at the next time I met with my mentor, I confessed. I said, you know, I've, I've not been reading the Bible, but I've got a Bible and I'd like to read it, but I don't have a clue as to where I'm supposed to begin. And so I don't know who Olive's mentor is, but Olive's mentor did a great thing in that moment. She gave Olive a great gift. She said, Olive, let me show you where the Gospel of Luke is. This is one of the stories where we read about Jesus, about his love for us and for the world, what his power is like. And so I want you to read through the Gospel of Luke. And then when you're done, I want you to go over. And she showed her where the book of Acts is. And she said, I want you to read through the book of Acts. That shows you what the early church was like and the kind of community that you're meant to be a part of. And so Olive described how her life is changing because somebody came alongside of her, began to see not simply who she was or what her story was like, but began to see what God was wanting to do in her life. She walked alongside of her. She understood Olive's story. And when times are tough, and Olive faces challenges. She says, come on, girl. We've got faith. We've got a God who's a, an overcoming God. Come on. Have grit. 
Walk with God. Let's keep going. Friends, when we see those signs about our mission, about transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ, it's happening in Olive's life. And there's a lot of Olives who walk among us, who live among us, who work among us. We have to step up to the plate. We have to be mentors. We have to share the gift that God has given to us.